Welcome to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Eric Strickland. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, this week, like all weeks, uh, we have James making sure that we sound good on the recording. So James, thank you very much. I'm, I forget you so much that I'm going to put you at the beginning of the episodes now. Um, and, uh, if you found us on Apple, thank you very much. Apple podcasts, is a good way to get us. You can get us on Google play or whatever your favorite podcast medium is. And then you can also find us on all the social medias, except for Snapchat. Sorry, interns not going to go there. So Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, straight up old school website if that's still something that you go to ntsb.gov so search for us on on all those platforms and also linkedin you can find us there so um let us know what you think of the episodes uh like us in the uh your favorite podcast platform so we can get some ratings there and let us know what questions you may have happy to uh happy to discuss those on on future episodes uh this week as uh many weeks i have stephanie in the room as well to make sure that i ask all the right questions but our guest of honor here, and so we'd like to thank her for joining us, is Jennifer Morrison. You are, and I'm going to say this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the official title on all of the paperwork is Supervisory Highway Accident Investigator IIC. And so I'll let you explain a little bit more about what an IIC is, but did I get that right? Yes, yes. Thanks for having <laughs> me. This is this will be a lot of fun, and hopefully uh, those listening will get... Um, some good information about what we do as highway crash investigators. So uh, a supervisory highway crash investigator is essentially just a team leader. So I lead a team of about six uh, crash investigators uh, that launch on major highway accidents all over the United States. Um, the investigator in charge part of it is basically my title. It is an official title that's in part of our regulations and what okay. we do. Um, it provides me some authorities as far as uh, writing subpoenas on scene and making decisions about the direction okay. of an investigation. And so that's the IIC. And so if you follow any of our investigations or anything like that, you'll have heard a board member on scene say, the IIC is here to answer your questions or you know follow the guidance. And so uh, if you weren't aware, so it's an investigator in charge. Correct. So how, and so we'll get into a little bit more, but just like, so you've lead the team. How long have you been at the NTSB? I'm just curious, like, did you work your way up? Is it one of those kind of things? Or did you come from somewhere else and then be in charge of the team? So I've been here for 15 years now. Nice. Um, and I did essentially work my way up to it in a way. Um, for 12 of my 15 years, I was a vehicle factors investigator or engineer. Um, I did all of the mechanical inspections on the vehicles that we would look at on scene. So I would do things like uh, transmission teardowns, brake inspections, steering gear inspections on all of the vehicles involved in a major highway crash. Um, and uh, I did, like I said, I did that for 12 years. It was a greasy, dirty job. And uh, about three years ago, I essentially got out from underneath the bus <laughs> um, and took on a team leadership role. So now on scene, you'll find me very comfortably docked away in a hotel uh, meeting room, uh, getting emails, um, making sure the team is taken care of, doing a lot more of the on-scene logistics. Yeah. And so you're funny, the under the bus, all the greasy part. One mm -hmm. of the first times I met you, uh, I had just started at the board and uh, we had launched to uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee yeah. for a school bus crash. And you were coming back for already scheduled uh, training opportunity to go tear down a, a, I think it was a transmission. And you were like, do you want to come? And I didn't even know that that was a thing that could be done, that you tear down transmissions. Like, what is that process like? If for someone, I am, 
anyone that's listened to a few of these episodes knows I'm not very mechanically inclined. <laughs> so I ask a lot of these kinds of questions. But, you know, when you go on scene, do you try to push it, piece the vehicle back together and then tear it down so you kind of know how everything would look before you break it apart? And, and then what does the breaking apart um, entail? Like, what kind of clues do you look for in all of that? Uh, so it really depends on the in, in the investigation and, and where the facts lead us. Not on on every single investigation, we wouldn't do something like a transmission teardown or yeah. a steering gear teardown or even an engine uh, teardown. Um, just like in aviation, I know they do a lot of uh, engine teardowns and highway. We have occasion to do that as well. Yeah. But we let the facts lead us there. Um, so if we have issues with, um, you know, not knowing the speed of a vehicle, um, and having actual damage to a transmission because there are gear bands essentially in a transmission. Mm-hmm. We can look at which gears were damaged, and then that can give us information on what speed range the oh, vehicle awesome. could have been in. Um, same thing with steering gear teardowns. Those are really fun to do. It takes a lot of time to pull apart a steering gear, yeah. but it can tell you because there's a, a worm gear inside of there. It can tell you whether the steering wheel was either far left or far right or straight in the middle at the time there was an impact. There's evidence inside these components. It's an interesting art, and we don't always do it. It yeah. really a lot of times now we have um, more information coming from electronic sources. Oh sure, like engine control modules and surveillance cameras. Um, just on the last, like, let's say four or five major investigations I've worked, we've always had some form of recorded either drive cam, onboard video, sure. or surveillance cameras picking up evidence from the scene, evidence of speeds and vehicles and all the things that we used to do more of the teardowns to get to. Do you think, is it is there sometimes an interesting combination of the traditional and the new school? So you've got all of the technology modern these things. Do you then look and say, you know, let's see if, let's just do a spot check to see if the, uh, you know, the transmission is showing us kind of the same thing as we're getting from the data. You just kind of match things up to make sure it's all accurate. Yeah. I always wonder about that. So we're getting all these new technologies, but how often do we try to match it up to yeah. some I, not, I guess uh, more of an analog system that is tried and trusted and we understand, we still understand the digital, but making sure everything matches up. Does that go on? Yeah. I mean, we, we always want to make sure that we have um, as many sources of evidence as we possibly can. So if we have something electronically and we can still get physical evidence to substantiate that, yeah. it's the right thing to do. Um, so we do a lot of that out on scene and then we'll do follow-up trips like the one uh, that I was scheduled to do either before or after Chattanooga. Yeah. It all kind of blends together when we, <laughs> that launch, if I remember, was um, uh, essentially during Thanksgiving or yeah. right right before Thanksgiving. So, um, uh, you know, we're trying to schedule a lot of things in there at the end of the year. Um, but yeah, it's it's a combination of electronic data, physical data, and being a vehicle factors engineer um, for those 12 years, I really did a lot of everything. I mean, we have to be prepared to look at any type of vehicle that's involved out on the highway. So one day I might have been looking at, you know, passenger cars mm-hmm. and doing hydraulic brakes. And the very next investigation, it could be a commercial tractor trailer, which is all pneumatically braked. Okay. Um, yeah. And then maybe it would be a, um, a motor coach, which has uh, still pneumatic or air brakes, but those are disc brakes versus drum brakes. So you're really not an expert in any of it, but we utilize all of our different contacts and party yeah. system. Um, so we will work with the motor coach manufacturers, car manufacturers, get specifications, do those teardowns, and really see if the vehicle caused or contributed to the cause of the crash in any way. 
So I'm assuming someone doesn't just wake up one day and be like, you know what, I want to be a vehicle inspector and I want to I want to understand the physics. I mean, you may have, and I, I'm <laughs> sorry if that and that's what happened, but you know, it seems like a really cool, interesting, hands-on type of combination of science and art. So understand the art form, but the science and the mechanics and all that. How how did you get there? So 12 years ago, how you know? Either how did you get the NTSB or even before that, how did you get kind of interested in, in those types of things and kind of what was your transportation path? Yeah, so it's um, there. Are, there are many segments to the path, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but I grew up in, in rural Iowa. Uh, and the way we got around was by driving and getting access to cars. So that was my way to get around. But transportation was critical to yeah. my upbringing. Um, and I learned to drive when I was 14 years old, as you could then, living outside the city limits. So those like of us it. from the Midwest. Yep. 13 um, for me. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, that's we always had to have access to transportation. And um, I grew up in kind of a rural area where uh, there were some old beat-up cars laying around. And those cars, if we wanted to get them to work, we had to do some work on them. Um, I had a bunch of old cars, Chevy's. Uh, Chevys were a big thing um, in my family. I had a Nova uh, at one point in time. Of course, nice. a Chevy Nova can be a beautiful car. Um, you know, they have come in all kinds of beautiful colors and designs and extra power. And, um, of course, mine was brown. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was nice. Uh, and that was what I had to get to and from high school and all the high school events and my job in, in high school. But it had a big old carburetor on it. And I really did have to get my hands dirty with the thing every once in a while. My dad was a machinist oh, okay. um, for uh, Burlington Northern Railroad. My mother was an electrician. Um, so, uh, for General Electric, she worked on electrical circuitry. So I guess it was kind of all... You say you're destined. This is just fate. <laughs> it was just kind of fate that, you know, being able to be handy yeah. was just not an option. It was just something I always had to be. Um, so we would work on the car and get it, you know, going. And, um, that kind of led to just a general interest in transportation. I thought, um, that I, of course, when I graduated from high school, I wanted to be an engineer. I thought engineer would be the right thing for me. I looked into different universities, ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania for bioengineering. Um, I thought that would be a really cool combination to look at the forces and stresses and strains on our bodies and cars. I envisioned myself maybe doing more of crash test ratings and vehicle interior designs, actually interned for General Motors one summer. Um, but in service parts operations, not in a big fancy mission. It wasn't what I pictured it to be, yeah. but it was still really interesting and in transportation. Um, and after college, I actually went to work for NHTSA, our, oh, okay. our sister agency, federal agency, um, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. A great job there for three years with the Office of Defects Investigation as an engineer really looking at parts that fail, Customer complaints, um, you know, leaking fuel rails to steering wheels that detach from their welds, all kinds of stuff. Really enjoyed working there. Um, Got to look at a lot of things while sitting at a desk, Mm -hmm. but never really got to go out and investigate. And, you know, I started kind of getting a bug for that while I was doing that defects investigation. So when I heard about this job at the NTSB back then in 2002, I thought, well... These guys certainly get out from under the desk and get to go do investigations and really get into it. Um, and I applied for the job and to my, much to my surprise, got it. Um, I was really young at the time, 25 years old. 
Um, I did not have a master's degree. I did not have 10 years experience. Those are things they were looking for on the application. Um, but I had a really good interview and I think they saw the interest, Mm -hmm. um, that I, that I brought to it. And, uh, they'd asked me a lot of questions about trucks, heavy trucks and, and buses and pneumatic braking systems. No idea. I had no idea that trucks and buses ran on air brakes. I'd only really worked on passenger cars. It's all hydraulic brakes. Um, but I'm like, okay, I can learn that. Um, and I did. And now that's one of my areas of expertise is, you know, commercial braking systems and (laughs) pneumatics. Um, but that was essentially the path that led me from NHTSA over to NTSB. And I really didn't know much about anything when I started here. Um, it was a huge learning process and a lot of on the job, you know, being on the scene of my yeah. first crash. That was, it's, it's hard. It, you know, at first it's exciting because you're doing something new and you're feeling like you can help somebody that, that you can really get to the cause of the crash and you can change things. You can prevent this from happening again. Um, but time after time after time, you realize that it's also really difficult to do that, yeah. to do that as an investigator, um, especially if we're really trying to look at the mechanical side of it and just focus on that. There's a human toll and that, that does affect all of us. Yeah. Do you remember what your first uh, accident investigation was? I do. Um, I do. And it's funny. Uh, it was in, it was in Connecticut. Um, the name of the, the city is, is, is leaving me right now. Uh, Fairfield. Okay. It was in Fairfield, Connecticut. Um, and I actually met this very interesting Connecticut state trooper on scene. Um, his name was David Pereira. <laughs> uh, he now works <laughs> for the NTSB. Um, it was, he, he interviewed uh, for a job here a couple years ago. Yeah. And I'm like, David Pereira. I know a David Pereira from Connecticut. Um, and so we brought him in for the interview. And, it, and sure, in fact, it was the same guy. Oh, that's um, and, it, and he was selected to be essentially my replacement. <laughs> uh, but the, the crash itself was, was a really harrowing uh, crash. It was um, a group of young men from Yale University that had gone down to New York City for some social events and that were heading uh, back to their university and um, ran into the underside of a trailer that had been involved in a previous loss of control mm. event and was oriented um, kind of in a dark um, and yeah. obscure position. And their uh, their Chevy Tahoe ran right into uh, the back of it. And I think six or so, I think six, there was nine people in the vehicle. I think about six of them died. Okay. Um, so it was a tragic crash. And we, we did make a lot of recommendations on that. There was um, some, some bad weather and some roadway treatment issues with it because of the loss of control of the previous, um, of the, of the heavy vehicle, the tractor trailer. Yeah. But also it was one of the very first crashes where there was an airbag control module. Airbags deployed on the Chevy uh, Tahoe, and it was one of the very first cases where we could download event data from an airbag control module. Oh, cool. General Motors actually had to come out to the scene to do it. Yeah? It was before we had kits that um, actually allow us to plug in into a vehicle and download the information directly and on our own with approved software from the companies. Um, And uh, yeah, it 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 was interesting looking at that case, but... That was in 2003, I believe. Okay. January, February 2003. Um, and I haven't been back to Connecticut since. <laughs> <laughs> it was very cold for that investigation. It's interesting. So the, the, um, 
a lot of people probably don't realize that their airbags have a fairly sophisticated kind of computer system that goes with them that registers how kind of fast they're going and and the rate to expansion of the airbag. I mean, all those kind of things and a lot of that data. I would have figured it would have been used at an investigation uh, before 2003. So do you know why maybe that was one of our first investigations involving is one of the first ones that maybe had it because it was a newer vehicle that might have had the the module on it or yeah they're they're really not that um they were not that common in the 90s oh, really? Um, okay. they really started have, becoming more sophisticated and now there's actual guidelines and standards that they must abide to if they are put into uh, a car yeah the interesting thing is that cars aren't required to have them at all they're required to have airbags, yeah. but they're, they're not required to record anything. So oh. unlike in the other modes of transportation where there's required event data recording modules, whether it's an aircraft or, or, or you know, marine vessels yeah. or locomotives, there is no such thing uh, in highway. Now, we do have the airbags, and yeah. we have guidelines and standards that those have to abide to if they are put in, um, but there's really nothing on heavy trucks or motor coaches or school buses. And it's something that we've spent a lot of time yeah. talking about. And in almost every single one of our board meeting investigations in highway, uh, these days we will try to reiterate or at least talk about the lack of event data. Yeah. I mean, and it's super important. It helps. Like we were just talking about getting the, the digital to match the analog, like every all that information you mm-hmm. can get. You know, it's it's people... We were just at a, a meeting where they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that this wasn't happening on whatever the issue was. It's the same with the data recorders for vehicles. Everyone thinks our cars are so mm-hmm. – our cars are pretty much computers with wheels, and so I assume I can get all of that data uh, and do that. Um, but speaking of computers with wheels, with all of this digitization of, of vehicles, do you get to play with those cars as much? I mean, I know you, mm-hmm. it's your work side as well. Do you still do you, on your personal side? Do you still like to tinker with cars and keep up yeah. to date on things? And I wish do you have I had a couple more repairs going on. That. Yeah, I really wish I had more time to do that. Um, when I was working for for NHTSA, I bought my first car, like my, my first brand new car, and it was a 2000 Jeep Wrangler, and it was my baby. I did a lot of work to it. I actually um, used it as my test vehicle or guinea pig um, as I went through all of my um, ASC certifications as a mechanic, Okay, um, which I did kind of after I completed engineering school and I was still young and just starting with the government. I went back to community college and did a vocational program just in automotive science and did all my ASC certifications. It's kind of like grad school but in reverse, yeah. <laughs> I, I ended up getting an associate's degree in automotive technology. But I used my my Jeep Wrangler as like my guinea pig. I changed the spark plugs. I did. I rotated the tires. <laughs> I, um, I took apart the transfer case at one point in time. Put on bigger tires. Put on a little lift kit. Um, I, I I unfortunately sold that Jeep uh, oh. last year. Oh, you did? I did. I, I sold it. It was it, it's great how well Jeeps maintain their their value. Um, I really loved that that car. I didn't put a lot of miles on it either because I live kind of sim- here within the DC metro. Yeah. Um, but I sold it and I officially got a grown up car. <laughs> my, my Wrangler didn't even have, you know, any power windows or any oh, of those yeah. luxuries. Um, it barely had heat, let alone air conditioning. Yeah. Um, and so it oh, wasn't, so you could take the top off. That was air conditioning. That was the air conditioning. That was pretty much it. Um, so I, I ended up trying to practice what I preach a little bit and I got a vehicle that has 
full collision warning and uh, autonomous emergency braking yeah. equipped um, and wanted to make sure I got one of the safer cars on the market for my family and um, practice some of that that advocacy that we do for collision avoidance systems. Um, then as the guinea pig, <laughs> how hard was it to transition from a fairly flatline standard, just, you know, Wrangler, no power <laughs> windows, you know, those kind of things to a vehicle that beeps and buzzes and all that. And you're an individual that, you know, big asterisks, yeah. you know, these things are there and you understand it. Did it make sense to you? It, it did make sense oh, okay. to me. I, I wouldn't drive <laughs> I a trouble. vehicle without it anymore. Um, and my husband also recently bought a new, uh, vehicle and ended up because of my pestering, um, had to get the full suite of collision avoidance yeah. and mitigation things on it as well. Um, but you know, it was it wasn't a hard transition for me because I really enjoyed the leather seat <laughs> and the heat. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. There was a lot of luxuries that I had been taking. You know, really not allowing myself for sure. so many years. Um, so, so becoming an adult and really getting that adult car. Yeah, um, it's been lovely. <laughs> it really has been. So uh, what's going to be your first project you do with this new car? Are you going to pop the hood, do no, anything? No, not no? at all. I'm going to do absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'm going to do absolutely nothing with it. It's a lease, in fact, so I just turn it back in. Oh, there you I go. Don't, I don't even have to change my own oil. Oh, see, I think you might miss that. One day, uh, maybe I'll delve back into getting another Jeep, maybe even an older model Jeep, like a CJ7. And when my when my children are old enough to be interested and helpful and engaged in that, it would be a great opportunity Let to Let me bring know it what back. age that is. I'm not sure that <laughs> helpful ever will come around. Yeah, I'm not sure yet either. I've got a long way to go. <laughs> well, that's really cool. And so you took kind of a, you know, something that was a necessity growing up. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, learn to enjoy it and then f- kind of find your route. I mean, it, it's kind of a theme we're finding with some of these, you know, episodes when we talk to different staff here. They all kind of have a passion and, and don't give up on what they're going for and, and kind of keep going with it. And I just to quickly, like you said, you didn't have enough experience, but even if you did kind of have what they're looking for, a lot of it's still on the job training. I mean, yeah. you'd still have to kind of just experience it and, and know you know, learn from someone else that's had, you know, been taking apart more, you know, uh, uh, axles and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't even know what any of the pieces are called. That's how mechanically inclined I, tires. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to tear down a tire or a wheel, but you know, it could happen. It could happen. Um, but yeah, they, uh, there's really no way to learn to do a job like an NTSB crash investigator. Um, when we bring on a new investigator, which, you know, Highway's been lucky to do several times in the last couple of years, um, we do a lot of shadowing, a lot of, you know, pairing up a new investigator with a more seasoned investigator um, on scene, not sending them out the first few times by themselves. It is something that is very unique. We have a very unique way of yeah. dissecting a crash. Um, we call it the multidisciplinary team approach where you look at all the different aspects. I was just a vehicle factors investigator before, but we have highway investigators that look at the civil engineering, the intersection, the roadway markings, the signage. We have survival factors investigators that really do that forces, stresses, and strains on the body, seatbelts, airbags, sure. ejections, and also emergency response. That's really important. Um, we also have motor carrier aspects where investigators go out and visit with the companies if there's commercial carriers to see what their safety ratings are, to see if they're in compliance with federal regulators, uh, federal regulations. Um, and then we also have uh, human performance, a very critical element, the driver, interviewing the driver, similar to 
the other modes in that case, uh, distraction, impairment, medical certification. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I'm missing somebody. Um, no, I mean, the, you've, you've covered quite a few of yeah. them. And so now in your role is, is in charge of the team. Yep. Uh, do you feel like you're even more of a, uh, a the Jeopardy category, potpourri? Like you, you get all these different pieces. You never know what you're going to get, but you're learning it all and kind of helping apply it to different things or say, oh, have you talked to so-and-so? Because while they're all so different, they all still relate to each other, I think, like in terms of what you're looking for. Like someone may be a vehicle safety person and not really an infrastructure person, but they can talk to each other and yeah. each learn something. I mean – in your role as in charge of the team, are you seeing a lot of that and kind of helping guide things that way? Is it something that you didn't expect or you kind of knew might happen? Yeah, I've kind of been shadowing others in the IIC role for many years. Um, in fact, one of the guys who's currently the highway investigator on, on the central team, the team that I'm the team leader for, um, used to be my investigator in charge. So oh. I kind of switched roles and I'd shadowed him for years. Um, so I understood that it would involve little aspects of all that multidisciplinary team. Um, and I really enjoy that, that part of the job, uh, getting yeah. to get out of the vehicle side of things as much as I can and looking into driver impairment. You know, I did a big investigation, one of my first as a, my first major as an IIC out in Davis, Oklahoma, where we had a truck driver that was using, um, that we think was likely under the influence of synthetic cannabinoids. I'd never even heard of that before. And that, for, for our listeners, that's like, um, you may have heard the street names of, of Spice or mm-hmm. K2. This is a, um, uh, it, it's a synthetic, and synth, synthetic? synthetic <laughs> mm-hmm. marijuana, essentially, um, that has a, an ever-rotating formula to get it ahead of certain specific regulations that are out in the states and federal. It's a, it's a rabbit hole if you want to go to Wikipedia that you can go. And yeah. I've, I've gone down this rabbit hole a few too many times, and it's 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 interesting. But, yeah, so you, really most scary. people – It is very scary. Because, there's, you know, it's not something that you even know if you take – what your reaction is going to be yeah. to it. And unfortunately, um, you know, our probable cause of that crash was that the a truck driver used that while operating a heavy vehicle, crossed the center line, and ended up killing four uh, students from a softball team mm-hmm. um, that, were, that were in a shuttle bus going the opposite direction. So, you know, really getting to, to dig into those areas and hopefully make an impact yeah. in, you know, driver impairment, driver distraction is something we see all the time. Um, and then even highway issues. Um, we worked a crash uh, in San, San Jose, California. Um, we published it last year where looking at it going into it, you may have assumed it was a driver distraction or driver impairment case. It was at five o'clock in the morning, you know, during that time where everyone, oh, the driver must be tired. Yeah. But because that bus was equipped with a drive cam, like an actual camera, we see them much more um, now in commercial highway vehicles. Um, And and this was a Greyhound bus, and Greyhound has them now in all of their buses, um, or most of their buses anyway. Because of that, we could see some of the highway conditions out there that we would have never known had it not been for that camera. And we found in that crash the probable cause was the failure of the California Department of Transportation to properly mark a crash yeah. attenuator. And I think we that one just came out last year just and came it out was last year. you know it was kind of rainy and so the camera helped kind of show what the driver is looking for but then there was also a camera that the investigators were able to look at to see what the driver is doing to make sure the driver wasn't distracted so you can put all those factors together. Uh, that's the case where I learned what Gore area was. Correct. I had no idea that that was even like a thing on the road and so for those who haven't 
don't know that, which is probably a majority of anybody. It's like the area between like the lane and the the pullout. Yeah, the almost, exit or the ramp. Exit yeah. Ramp. yeah. So an area of highway that's not really intended for you to drive on yeah. is called a gore area. And a lot of states like, you know, Virginia, where I live, um, they mark their gores with some kind of a cross hatching. So it's very obvious that this is not a lane. Yeah. Um, but in, in this case in California, it wasn't marked. And we found that to be part of the probable cause in that case too. I think I was a mock board member on that one. I was in, I never read yeah. Gore Area so many times in a report. I didn't know what it was. And then it was almost every paragraph there was something on it. So I learned very quickly what that was. Yeah. You learn, no matter where you work here, you learn something every day. Yeah. I feel like I learn something new on every investigation we do. Yeah. There's always something that's unexpected. Like you, a lot of times we try to decide on what types of crashes to even go to because in highway it's, yeah. There's really no straightforward equation. And okay, if there are, you know, more than three people who've been killed, maybe we'll go. Um, I've been on crashes where there's only one fatality. We've recently launched an investigation where no one was even hurt um, in Las Vegas, Nevada with yeah. an autonomous shuttle bus. So it really depends. And that's a decision we have to make in trying to come up with ideas or, you know, decide on what we think the issues might be from here at headquarters yeah. in D.C., um, almost always we find out different things once we get into it. Well, and, and that kind of leads into a little bit of, you know, everyone knows that we're the agency, you know, plane crashes, we're there, you know, that's what we have. But we do that for all modes of transportation. We go in and try to find what changes can be made so that safety is um, enhanced and so that this type of accident or crash doesn't happen again. There's there's so many crashes on the highways, and we all know that. Um, it's sometimes hard to, like you said, like how do you know? And so you try to get all that information. Can you just maybe walk you know, everyone through a little bit of kind of what goes through? So if you're the duty officer that week and um, our response operations center, um, which if you go to our Twitter feed, uh, we've taken some pictures and talk a little bit about that on there. You can They help monitor all the news that's coming in, but kind of what are your steps as you are looking over some of the accidents that get identified and forwarded up to the... Um, uh, oh, I just said the word and I can't remember what it is. If you're the uh, um, duty officer, duty officer, yes. <laughs> so yeah, that we have this. I role. have water instead of coffee. I should have coffee <laughs> right now. We have this role um, amongst all of our investigators. We all take turns being the the duty officer, um, and that basically just entails you know listening to what the rock is uh, the. Response Operations Center is passing along to us, and there are crashes every single day. Two, three, four, five fatal, you know, large crashes every day. It's really unfortunate, and it's what we're trying to make an impact yeah. on. Um, so we get information, and sometimes if the circumstances are that of it's like an issue we want to look at, like you know, cell phone distraction, or if we feel that the dynamics of the crash um, would be interesting to investigate and push forward for a national issue, not just a local issue. Sure. Like right now it's January and we're getting a lot of icy road, wet weather, you know, poor conditions, weather condition type crashes that we're seeing come across. Typically we wouldn't look at a lot of those because that's a, you know, it's a weather thing. Yeah. Um, now we, we have launched on some in the past and talked about road treatment and what localities can do, but typically that's a state and local thing. Um, things that really pull more of that national interest. Yeah. Like right now, autonomous vehicles. If there is a fatal crash involving an autonomous vehicle, there's a chance that we're going to go look at that. Um, also, uh, school buses equipped with seatbelts. Yeah. That's something that we haven't seen a lot of, and more states are doing that, so we're going to want to go take a look at that. 
or even motor coaches that now are all required to have seat belts mm -hmm. having crashes where we still have fatalities that could easily be prevented had people been wearing their seatbelts. So those are the type of national issues that we'll try to, you know, stick to. Um, heavy vehicles, heavy tractor trailers that have very poor safety ratings or high-risk motor carriers sure. is something that we would want to look at because um, – even though we have electronic logging devices that are now out there um, and being required. I don't know if they're being enforced quite yet. I think that's yeah. still uh, something that's that's out there that uh, the commercial vehicle industry is looking at. But now that they're out there, looking at more of the hours of service issues um, that might be related to a heavy vehicle crash, even with ELDs. Yeah. Well, and this is also, so we may not launch on, on all of these, but we might keep an eye on them because mm -hmm. if we're seeing the same type of crash repeat itself, you know, every week or again, a lot of them, it might get us, give us pause to look and see, is there something else that's going on here? Right. I mean, it's kind of a, mm -hmm. are we, you know, this looked like this, but now we're seeing the same vehicle involved in a bunch of these things or the same type of road dynamics. And are we, are we missing something? Is there something else that might be here that could be, that should be um, looked at and maybe have some national attention drawn to it? Yeah. And sometimes they just, you know, they offer themselves to us. You know, we really never know what, what it's, what the day is going to bring. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. you come to work in the morning and think that you're going to have a full day of meetings. And the next thing you know, you have your go bag out and you're getting on a plane. <laughs> um, for instance, last, uh, summer, two summers ago now, not this past summer, the summer before that, we had a bit of a rash of migrant workers, seasonal migrant worker crashes. Mm -hmm. The first one happened and we just launched as what we call a field investigation, sent a few investigators down, not the full team, kind of looked out a little bit came back to the office and a few months later had another crash that involved these seasonal migrant workers. Um, and then we learned a lot about the Department of Labor regulations in that area. Okay. Shortly thereafter, we had another crash uh, down in Florida that time, um, an intersection crash involving another migrant worker bus and a tractor trailer. So in that case, that was a buildup. And we had now three yeah. crash investigations that we were going to continue to develop and we brought to the board just this past November. Yeah, and that was one of those ones, like you said, it was a, a tragic crash the first time. Mm -hmm. It got more tragic, and then you started to realize there might be something else here, and, and how deep, and like you said, you went into regulations from Department of Labor and things, and this is something that a local uh, law enforcement investigation may not delve into. They're not probably going to you know, go looking into the regulations because they're not looking at the the full safety aspect. Mm -hmm. I don't want that to sound like the way it is, but they're not. They're looking to see what caused this this crash and and how can we then move forward with whatever you know the prosecutors want to do or what. I mean, just dealing with their local thing. But we're able to kind of look at it as a, a national and try to bring attention and safety to to everyone, not just that yeah. that area. Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting and almost tricky footing between local law enforcement or state law enforcement and NTSB investigators. Um, it's something I've had to really learn a lot about as an investigator yeah. in charge. Um, but that's essentially what we tell them on scene two. They could, in almost all circumstances, local law enforcement is extremely helpful. They're instrumental yeah. in us being able to do our job. And we see ourselves as a force multiplier for them. Sure. The yep. things that they might not have access to do or might not have the time or ability to do, 
we're there to make sure that that happens. And if there is a national issue, if there is another federal agency um, that we would want to make recommendations to or look at this in a big picture, that's where we come in and we never try to uh, impede or inhibit their criminal investigation. So essentially it's like a a parallel safety investigation to their criminal investigation. So we have to help each other out a little bit to make sure that that goes smoothly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I typically walk away from all of my crash investigations that I've done, especially as an IIC, with really strong relationships with the local and state authorities um, and really respect them and what they have to do. That's awesome. That's very cool. And then that national perspective kind of leading into another portion is, uh, you and other investigators at the agency are seen as experts nationally and often are brought in to different groups to talk to different people and uh, be great advocates for safety um, within the highway world. And I know um, as this episode is getting released, it's the, uh, I just don't know it as a society for um, something engineers. Yeah, it's just SAE International. Oh, they SAE, don't, I, uh, I think it's like it when AAA exactly. got rid of all the whatever it stands for. It's just now AAA. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it used to stand for a Society of Automotive Engineers. Okay. Or, um, then it was Automotive and Aerospace Engineers. So they also covered that mode. But really, we just call it SAE International. Okay. And like you mentioned. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah. Sorry for everyone listening. I didn't mean to butcher it. <laughs> they are holding their um, their annual government industry meeting next week. So we're you know in full swing in preparation for that. Um, you know, I, I'm really working on two different aspects. I'm chairing a session on vulnerable road users for that. So motorcyclists, bicyclists, and pedestrians. Yep. We're looking to do a big pedestrian um, study. I think NTSB will hopefully publish something next year or so. Yeah. Um, but this will be other uh, government and industry coming together to talk about, you know, what um, – federal agencies are doing as far as rulemaking and policy and research and what the industry is doing to increase the technology or do the testing or guidelines. Um, And then also I'm the current secretary of the Washington, D.C. section of SAE, which is just a great opportunity for me personally to get involved in some networking and get to see what other engineers and um, people who are interested in transportation yeah. are doing within this Washington, D.C. area. We, we get to do things like see, um, we recently saw a presentation on the Hyperloop oh. that the University of Maryland is working on as part of the SpaceX Challenge. Okay. It gives me hope in the future generations. <laughs> it is high tech well beyond my area of comprehension. Yeah. Um, and it's just really impressive. So that's the kind of thing we get a little window into that as being a part of SAE um, and the Washington, D.C. section. Well, and I think that's important. I mean, we learn a lot from our investigations and the party system working with our partners on the scene and during the whole process. But I think we almost learn just as much outside of the investigation realm with all the researchers. I mean, we're um, you know, at the time we're taping this and going into when it's going to be released, we're coming off of the Transportation Research Board's uh, uh, international, international conference, national yeah, conference, where, like 3,600 researchers coming in to talk about things that I, I don't understand at all. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to enhance my knowledge in different modes of transportation. I sat in one and got a booklet. Yep, didn't know. It was so much math and other things that I didn't understand, but... S- 
90% of the people in the room all got that and they're applying that to make things safer and take that information. And I think that all that kind of sharing and, uh, is really important and our experts within the agency going out and sharing our perspective and then learning from other people I think is really important. It just helps broaden. Kind of like you said, you know, you're getting to know all the different pieces. You're not an expert in this whole realm, but you know enough uh, to be able to maybe ask someone who might know a little bit more about the you know, the widget that's on the gizmo that does all of those kinds of things. One day I'll go out with you and we'll break down a brake system and you can teach me some of this. I do not mind. Yeah. You know. Well, all of it's changing. I mean, and we don't, you know, when it comes to the new, you know, autonomous vehicles and electric drive, a lot of that, you know, we are relying on information from, you know, these outside researchers and industry groups because everything is changing so quickly yeah. that you know, as an investigator for a federal agency, we're, we can't be expected to know every single thing. That's why we really use the the experts in that field to inform us, um, and then hopefully steer some of our you know recommendations and yeah. um, determinations of what can be done to improve safety. And there's a lot that highway can learn from the other modes of transportation who've done a lot of autom- automation sure, before yeah. us, like in certainly in aviation. Um, and uh, as soon as, you know, rail gets more involved with positive train control, those are areas where highway can have a lot of lessons to learn. Yeah. No. And that's, uh, again, we've said this a few times on, on episodes, we are the we are the perfect agency to help with all of that cross-modal education and, and taking all of those lessons learned. I mean, you know, it, you, you hit the nail on that. Aviation Marine have done some automation stuff for many years, and we can take that and apply that to some of the technologies being developed in the highway realm and, you know, in the rail realm and with positive train control, how that works for them and how they handle all the data that they're developing on that. And that will then help influence maybe how the data is collected on autonomous vehicles. Uh, you know, GM's just announced they're going to be trying to get permission to do mass production of a car with no steering wheel, which again, I've been uh, officially driving since I was 13, unofficially driving since I was like seven, (laughs) having a vehicle without a steering wheel, it just, just creeped me out. And I don't know how I don't personally, as I'm in the world every day, I don't know how I feel about that. And I can't imagine what a quote unquote lay person who a car is things with four wheels, a door and a steering wheel. I mean, when you take some of that away, how is that going to impact? So that's Again, I yeah, I don't know how, if we know how we feel about that, even as an agency yet. <laughs> yeah. we, that's why we're starting to look at things like yep. the Las Vegas shuttle incident uh, that we investigated. Um, we want to make sure that we have as much information as possible to steer that industry. Steer. I see what you did there. <laughs> I see what you did there. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's scary and, and exciting all at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just as excited about autonomous vehicles and the, that possibility as the next person, but I've also seen seen a lot of things, uh, a lot of bad things when we do have a driver behind the wheel. And maybe that's something that automation can actually help. Um, Maybe automation can also be a concern. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, we really need to look at that from all angles. Um, It has a huge amount of potential, but it also has a lot of risk to it. No. And that's why, that's why we're here, you know, to keep an eye on things and if there is an, an incident or a crash, uh, that we're able to look at that and make sure that doesn't happen again. And that's kind of our core core mantra as an agency. So uh, so I think it's really important. With that, I, I want to say thank you very much to Jennifer for joining us. I mean, and sharing some of her, her I can't talk today, some of her perspective on how, uh, how she got here. And uh, uh, it's nice to always meet someone else who's been driving since they were not really able to reach the pedals and so uh and how that actually influenced your career path and your interest level so that's really good so um be sure to uh again 
Find us on social media, on the Twitter, on the Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. You know, we want to share as much of our knowledge with you as possible. So follow us, send us whatever questions you may have, and uh, make sure to download us and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. So, and plug the blog. And Jennifer has a few of the, uh, the crash investigations that you mentioned um, with the migrant workers. You have a really, um, oh, that's right. and, uh, some blogs that you've written about some of those things too. So, so the blog link will be uh, with this episode, but it's uh, Safety Compass. Dot wordpress.com. I don't, I think it's a dot com. Um, so it's on our website. It, yeah. yeah, just on our website. NTSB Gov, look for the compass. Yeah, look for the compass and so find us there. So again, thank you everyone for joining us mm-hmm. and uh, thank you for coming behind the scenes. Till next time. Bye. Thanks.